three words we want to remember as we come to the Lord's Word today are the words that you have before you on the uh, overhead. Behold your King. Those were the words of Pilate when he presented Jesus before having been crucified. He had scourged him. He was bruised and beaten beyond recognition. He brings Jesus before the people at the praetorium, presenting their king to them. Behold your king. But we're in Matthew's Gospel, and we have been talking about those things that precede the crucifixion of our Lord. And we'll continue in the book of Matthew today, but only read a few of the verses that are following where we left off the last time. We have been in chapter 27. We'll continue there as we study this word, this important message of the Lord that I believe he wants presented here today. Beginning with verse 27 of chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew. Turn there, if you will, with me. We'll be reading a lot of other scriptures. Uh, You probably will not be able to keep up with me as I go from one scripture to to the next, but if you have a pen and paper, you can write them down or see me afterwards, and I'll give you a list of those scriptures if you're interested. But here in this portion of Matthew's Gospel, read with me verses 27 through 30 together. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Hail, King of the Jews! If you have read the Word of God, and I hope that you have, throughout the Old Testament, initially, Israel had no king but God Himself. It was God's intent, God's purpose for Him alone to be their king. Moses was not their king. Moses was the one who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. Joshua was not his king. Joshua was the one who led them into the land of Canaan. And after Joshua died, God raised up judges, not kings, but men and women of God who would help the people of Israel come back to God. For throughout that 400 or so years, over the time that they were there in the land of Canaan, they were influenced by the gods of the people that they were supposed to have eliminated but did not. And as a result of their having not done what God intended for them, they continued in sin over and over and over again in almost a cyclical pattern. They would go for about a period of 40 years until things began to get really, really bad, and then they would cry out to their God, and God would respond them to them. And He would deliver them from the oppression that was happening at that particular time in their history by bringing a judge, a savior, to help them and direct them back to God and back to his word. And then when things got better for them, they began to think, well, we're okay now, we're good, we're prosperous, we're fine. And then they began to drift again. And over and over again throughout that 400 year or so history, they 
we're always falling into the same pattern. And the book of Judges tells us very matter-of-factly they did what was right in their own eyes. The people of Israel did not have a king. God wasn't going to give them a king until they were ready for a king. They chose to require of Samuel, give us a king, like all the other nations around us. Give us a king. God was their king, but they would not have him as their king. Behold your king. That angered God. It grieved Samuel so much that he cried out to God, Lord, why are they doing this? And God's response to Samuel is, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. They didn't want him to be their king. They wanted a fleshly ruler, one that they could look at and and think about as the leader of the people who would take them and their armies against their enemies and defeat their enemies. And he would be the one who would be in charge of the entire nation. They thought that that was the solution they needed. They were wrong. But God gave them the desire of their hearts, just as it was written in the psalm that was read this morning. God gave them the desire of their heart. You want a king? You have a king. And so Samuel chose, through God's leading, a man named Saul. He wasn't God's choice. He was a people's choice. A tall man stood up head and shoulders above all the other people, strong and a man that was highly respected among the people. He did a pretty good job at the beginning, but he failed miserably in the end. Why? Because he wasn't God's choice. But in the process of having given them a king that they wanted, God was behind the scenes working out his perfect plan and bringing to a place where another individual could be and would be the king of Israel, as God had chosen. His name is David. He had been anointed as a young boy. And over the time of several years, going through all kinds of adversities, troubles and trials, David was being brought to that place where he would become the king that God had chosen. The king of Israel, indeed, was David, his choice. And when he came to the throne... At the age of 33, only then he was over the first seven years, the two tribes of the southern area of Israel. Not all of Israel supported him, but ultimately they did. They joined together. They came as one people together under David's reign, and he reigned as their king. And that man David was given a promise by God. That man David was given a promise that through his loins there would come another, a son of David, a descendant of David, who would reign forever. A true king, one who would be established on David's throne. And that one is the one standing before this Roman guard that we've just read about. Behold your king. They have no king but Caesar, they said. They rejected Christ as they had rejected God in the Old Testament Scriptures. They rejected Jesus as well. And so they are in this time 
rejecting the one who came to them as their king. Again, beginning with John's Gospel, reading the entire verse that you have before us here this morning, 19 verse 14 in John's Gospel, it says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. So it's very early in the morning. By Roman time, it was about six o'clock in the morning. The Passover, a special day, a feast day, where they would sacrifice the lamb, and they would offer that lamb unto the Lord. It was the day that Christ was crucified. The perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Behold your King. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your King. We have no king but Caesar. Think about this. Consider this. Ponder it in your heart. We have no king but Caesar. How many people today do you know and I know that would say the same thing? We have no king but whatever it is that they put on their throne. They will not receive this one who came for the purpose of saving their souls and giving them eternal life in His kingdom, established forever and ever. They would not have Him as their king. It's still the same today. Go back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, we have Gentiles, Magi, who are coming to Israel because they see a sign in the sky, a star that's shown over Jerusalem, apparently to them. And they determine that that star is significant because it must be predicting something of a birth, the birth of a king. You remember the story. We just looked at it just a few short months ago. They traveled to Jerusalem from the east. They went to Herod in his palace in Jerusalem. And they asked this question, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. They were coming for a right reason. They wanted to worship this king. They recognized this was a spectacular event. And it had to be that a king was born in Israel. And they came to worship him. They found him in Bethlehem. And they did indeed worship him. They gave him gifts. And then they departed. And no more word is given to us about those men. But in that passage in Matthew's Gospel and also elsewhere, we find that these men and others came to worship this one who was born in such a lowly estate as he was. It must have been so very confusing for these men, who were very wealthy men apparently, had come all this way to expect the grandeur of a king born in the palace in Jerusalem and find him in a manger, a cow trough, in a lowly town called Bethlehem. That same one grew into adulthood began his ministry in Galilee primarily. And over the years, he brought together with him several people that were his disciples, twelve in particular that became his closest of the disciples that he named apostles. And to his apostles, he had spoken these words during his Galilean ministry, found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse... or rather, uh, chapter 16... Verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in 
His kingdom. Who is this Son of Man? It is Himself, Jesus. He referred to Himself as the Son of Man in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He is the one that they said, you will see Me in My glory, in My kingdom. He is the King of Jews, but He's also the King of the Gentiles. But as the King of the Jews, even though they rejected Him, He remains so today. And in that time that He spoke to His disciples, in that portion of His ministry where He was in the area of Galilee before He came down to Jerusalem, He said, there will be some of you tells us in verse 28 of chapter 16, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He's got a kingdom. It is a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. And He wanted some of His disciples to see that evidence of that great glory that was to be His once again. And so He went to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew tells us it was a high mountain. They went up and only three of His apostles went with Him, James, John, and Peter. And it was there that Jesus was transfigured before them. And they saw Elijah and Moses standing with Jesus, talking to Him about His exodus, His going out, exodus, talking about His death. There was a death that He had to accomplish before the glory would be ultimately revealed. But they saw His glory. He shone like a light of the sun before them. He had come. It was in fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 tells us, Behold, your King is coming to you. But note that He has a special approach and reason for His coming in this fashion that was predicted, prophesied by Zechariah. He says, not only is it that your King is coming, but He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. He's just and has salvation. He's offering something to the people. He wants them to know that He's coming for a purpose. And He's going to approach the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a lowly animal, He's coming as a lowly servant of God in obedience to the commandments of His Father that He must go to Jerusalem for the purpose of suffering a terrible death so that we wouldn't have to suffer that terrible death ourselves. Your King comes. Your King. Oh, listen, people, the Jews should have known it. They should have realized it. When Pilate said, Behold your King, they said, Yes, He is our King. Yes, We do want to have Him as our King, but they would not. In fact, they accused Pilate of being a friend of the wrong individual. Because he didn't want to give them what they were looking for. They wanted him dead. But Pilate was resisting. He said, why? What evil has he done? I find no fault in this man. Pilate was looking for a way out. He found none. So when they put him on the cross, Pilate instructed the soldiers to put a sign upon that cross. A sign that would say in three different languages, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
When the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees saw that sign, it angered them. They went to Pilate and said, take that sign down. Don't say, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Say, this is Jesus who said He is the King of the Jews. They would not accept it. They would not receive it. They still would refuse, as the Old Testament Jews before them, the King that God had to offer. So yes, He is the King of the Jews. They could not deny it, but they did. But He's also the King of the Gentiles. Now the Roman soldiers knew nothing of the Old Testament Scriptures. They were just following orders. This man is to be crucified. They're in the Praetorium, which is a palace in Jerusalem, probably Herod's palace. And it is very, very impossible for any faithful Jew to enter into that area. It was a Gentile building. And the court was a Gentile court. They would not set foot in that area at all. So here we have Jesus surrounded by a cohort of Roman soldiers, and they're mocking him. They're playing games with him. They think this is fun. Now keep in mind that these Roman soldiers have done a lot of crucifixions through their time there in Jerusalem and perhaps elsewhere. It was the common way that Rome made available to anyone who was a rebellious individual, who was an insurrectionist, who was judged to be worthy of death, as long as he wasn't a Roman citizen, that person would be crucified. It was a terrible, terrible form of death. It's a slow process. Sometimes took several days. They're preparing Jesus for that ultimate punishment. But before they bring him to the cross to be crucified, they have him in this Roman court. And consider the fact that Matthew is recording for us exactly what took place. So it's, I think, very, very likely that at least one or more of those Roman guards did indeed get it. Not then, but perhaps at the cross, when they were all gathered around the cross and they were hearing the accusers pronouncing these threats against Jesus. If you are the Christ, come down from that cross. He cannot save himself. How can he be Savior of all men like he says he is? The Roman soldiers who were present were hearing those accusations. They also heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those Roman soldiers would have heard the two thieves on either side of Jesus raising all kinds of insults against Jesus until one of them began to think and began to realize, hey, wait a minute, this Jesus... He performed miracles. He spoke words of truth. How could he be anything other than innocent? And he began to realize, this man is more than just a man. This man is the one who was to suffer, according to Isaiah 53. And he turned to Jesus, and the Roman soldiers would have heard this man cry out to Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, let me come with you. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, this day you will be with me in paradise. The Roman soldiers would have heard that. The centurion at the cross, when it was all over, admits, surely this is the Son of God. Some of them got it. And that's how I believe Matthew 
got the story from perhaps one or more of those soldiers who would have been present at this particular time in the mockery of Jesus. Take note again of what is happening. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. Probably a soldier's cloak. In some of the translations, some of the other Gospels talk about the robe as being purple in color, but it's not necessarily an error. It's just a color range that is described by this particular Greek word that is used here. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they had twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a crown of thorns on your head, but I don't think that that would be a very comfortable thing to have to wear. I'm certain that it was not. Whether the thorns were the kind that are three or more inches long that would have penetrated his skull when they rammed it down on his head is not really all that significant, but the embarrassment of it, the mockery of it, is what I want to focus our attention on here today. Behold, you're a king. He's wearing this robe. He's got a crown on his head. He's beaten to a pulp. His beard has been plucked out. Face almost unrecognizable, according to Isaiah 52, verse 7, where he says that he he was marred like no other man. These are the things that they were observing as they were putting all of their effort in mockery, spitting on him, taking the reed that they had put in his hand and beating him on the head with it, slapping him around, treating him miserably after he had been beaten with a scourging. The scourging itself would have been so very, very difficult to have to endure. Consider the fact that the Roman scourging instrument was a whip with several straps of leather that had metal and stone embedded, wrapped into the metal, into the leather straps. And when the Roman soldier whipped the back of the prisoner and then pulled that whip back, he tore flesh off that man's body. Behold your king. They didn't know, but you do. He is not only the king of the Jews, but he's king of all, Gentile and Jew alike. The apostle Paul, who was also antagonistic against this Christian sect, wanted to have them put in jail and killed. He wanted to eliminate the followers of Christ until he was on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him saying, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It is Jesus. It is I who you are persecuting. Lord, what would you have me to do? And Jesus told him, You're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to proclaim my name to them. You are going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul was the great apostle to the Gentiles. He went on three missionary journeys that we've got recorded in the Word of God that show us that everywhere he went, he faced opposition. He was one who was completely fixed on the commission that God had given him, no matter at what the cost might be. And he would tell everyone that he came to, Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Later on in his ministry, he writes to his dear friend Timothy, and the words are recorded for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
He tells Timothy there, keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which He will manifest in His own time. He who is a blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords to all. Everyone who would believe, He offers this one simple offer. Salvation. Free. He came as a man. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians rather, verse 8 of chapter 2, he says this, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold your King. It's God's intent that everyone should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing that not all will. He makes the offer still. And here in Philippians, Paul is telling us that he humbled himself to become a man so that all of those things that had been prophesied in the Word of God could indeed be fulfilled and were. And in fulfilling all of that, he proved himself to be indeed the king of both Jew and Gentile. The Roman soldiers in Matthew 27 were hailing him as a king mockingly. But there's coming a day, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 that we just read, that men and women everywhere, all peoples, will ultimately bow their knee to Him. And they will either have to or willingly admit, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anyone can willingly admit now in this present hour But those who choose not to admit His kingship, His lordship over us, will find out that there is coming a day, according to what we just read, that they will indeed bow their knee to Him. Again, let me read what Paul says. Every knee shall bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. Yes, He is the King of the Jews. He's the King of the Gentiles. He's the King of all. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, in 1 Timothy, we read that. That's exactly what Paul is conveying to Timothy. And he says in another place, John writing this time in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17, verse 14, John writes these words, talking about those during the tribulation period who are not followers of Christ. They're followers of what we call the Antichrist, the beast and his prophet. They will be in that day Seven years of tribulation will be coming upon the face of the earth. And during that time, at the end of that seven years, Christ will return. And He will stand on Mount Zion. He's going to put His feet upon that mountain and the mountain will be split in two. And He's coming for one purpose, to reign on the earth in David's seat. To fulfill that which was spoken by the Lord to David. That covenant promise will ultimately become a reality. But near the end of that tribulation period, when He does come, there's work that is going to be done. He's going to destroy those who are not wanting to follow and to believe in His Lordship. 
And it tells us again in Revelation chapter 14, or 17, verse 14, These make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Chapter 19, verse 16 of the same great book of Revelation, John writes this, As He comes from glory, it says, He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Make no mistake, when He comes a second time, they will know that He is indeed the King. Behold your King. Take note again back in Revelation chapter 17 that we just read. That He's coming against those who reject Him. But He's also coming with those who have received Him. For it says, He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. That's you and me. The saints of God will return with Him. In that day, we will see Him stand, and we will be there rejoicing with all of the saints who have ever gone before us, and we will behold our King. And He's coming to judge the world. He's coming with a, an authority that is given by His Father to reign over all the world forever and ever. He will be reigning supreme. Psalm 136, verse 3 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. That psalm tells us that God is their Lord, the Lord of lords. Now make the connection. He, David is speaking of God in heaven. John was speaking in Revelation of Jesus on the earth, and they both are referred to as Lord of lords. There can only be one answer to that question. Why are they both given that title? It's because Jesus is God. Deuteronomy 10:17, Moses speaking, says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe, but He will indeed again reign forever with a rod of iron. He'll reign, it'll be forever, and it will be with a rod of iron, with the authority that only He can have. Now back in the days of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had had a king on the throne in Judea for all those years from David until the time that Babylon came and destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And that period of time began what is known to us as the time of the Gentiles. And from that moment on, there has not been anyone sitting on David's throne. The throne has been empty. It is the time of the Gentiles. Through the Babylonian era, through the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, through the Grecian Empire, through the Roman Empire, through this present day, there has not been a king on the throne of David. But he will come. Revelation 19.6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In Psalm 2, verses 6 to 9, David speaking prophetically of another statement regarding the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says there, Yet I have set my king, God speaking, 
I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He's speaking of Jesus. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is His purpose in coming, to judge the world. And He will reign on the earth with a rod of iron, just as it is spoken here in this passage. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 9, verse 7, talks about an earthly rule. It's talking about, again, Jesus, prophetically, coming and reigning. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Behold your king. I mentioned the Babylonian captivity. I want you to remember, if you haven't known this, perhaps you'll learn something today. Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile king. What sets Nebuchadnezzar apart from all of the other kings recorded in the Word of God is this. He had alone all authority. There was none who could resist His Word. What He spoke became law. He made His own choices as King and nobody, nobody could refute Him, could turn away from His commands and live. Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful king, autonomous king, No other king like him. The kings of the Medo-Persian government relied on laws that were written. They were subjected to their own laws. They couldn't change them. Not so with Nebuchadnezzar. He stands uniquely in the Word of God as the only human being that had that kind of authority. That's the authority that Jesus Christ ultimately is going to take upon himself. But Nebuchadnezzar became proudful. Prideful. And in his pride, he came out one day and looked around the city of Babylon. He said, oh, look at this great Babylon which I have built. And at that moment, God judged him. And for a period of seven years, he was like an animal, a beast in the wilderness. He was removed from his throne because God chose to show him something. And for seven years, he was just like a beast, growing his fingernails long, his hair growing, and he was just mentally deranged all of that time until finally God released him from that and he restored him to his throne. And when he was restored, he was changed. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says, recorded by Daniel the prophet in chapter 4 of that great book of Daniel, chapter 3. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 3, it says, How great are His signs. Nebuchadnezzar talking. This is a Gentile talking about God Almighty. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. 
Later on in the same book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. He says, I saw the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, and one like the Son of Man came before him. He's talking about Jesus, the one who named himself to be the very Son of Man prophesied by Daniel in this passage that we're about to read. Chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Then to him, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Not just the Jews, not just the Romans, not just the Babylonians, not just the Greeks, but all nations, all languages shall serve him. He is king of all. Behold your king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. You may remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he saw a statue in the plains of Shinar. And he saw that statue in his dream had a head of gold, shoulders and breast of silver. The midsection was iron or bronze. The legs and toes, feet, were iron and then mixture of iron and clay. He didn't understand what that vision was all about. But Daniel came and interpreted that vision for him. He said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. Gold is a sign, a picture of perfection. The one that comes after you is silver, of lesser quality, still going to rule over the peoples of the world, the Medo-Persian government. The next government that would come would be the Grecian Empire, the bronze. And then the one that was iron, the Roman Empire, strong and mighty, powerful Roman Empire. But then the toes, the feet, a mixture of clay and iron. And in that vision, Nebuchadnezzar also saw a rock not made by hands that was cast upon the feet of that statue, and it crumbled and became as dust. And that rock grew and filled the earth. You know that that is a picture of Jesus Christ as He comes and establishes His kingdom. And it will grow throughout all the earth as it is recorded, and it will be a kingdom that will be everlasting. A mighty kingdom. And His kingdom shall not pass away. Eternal. Forever and ever. He will reign. So, so behold your king. In these last days, we've seen many years pass since Christ walked on this earth, since His crucifixion, since His burial, since His resurrection. The church had been born. They ministered throughout the then-known world, saying, Jesus Christ is alive and He's coming again. He will reign. And over this long period of time, scoffers have come. And they said, where is His coming? What are you talking about? He died 2,000 years ago and look, nothing's changed. Peter actually talked about those things that would happen in the last days. But Paul also speaks of those last days, talking again to Timothy, his dear friend. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, near the end of his life, Paul writes these words, Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will be turned aside to fables. I see that happening in the world today. I see our world presently as a fulfillment of what Paul warned Timothy in this passage. We've come to that place where they will not receive the truth. But we're exhorted to preach the word in spite of that. We're exhorted to do as he instructed Timothy, to be ready in season and out of season, to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. This is our time to proclaim to the entire world around us, Behold your King. He's coming again. And when He comes, He'll come in glory. He'll establish His reign. And one of my favorite psalms speaks of this great appearing of our Lord. Psalm 24, beginning with verse 7, says this, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Behold your King. He's Jesus. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Some time ago, I was led to write down some words that became a poem that I'd used from time to time to remember what Christ has done for me. Listen to the words and see if you can't apply your own heart to these very same things. Eternal King and Savior, this I vow, it is you that I desire to behold. I notice first the crown upon your brow, but why do I see thorns instead of gold? Now my eyes are opened to observe the wounds upon your back so fiercely made, reminding me of stripes which I deserve that should have in your stead on mine been laid. Your hands and feet are clearly now in view, and seeing these I know the pain you bore to make it so that I could live for you and have that blessed joy you suffered for. Your wounded side, pierced by a soldier's thrust, reveals your tender heart of love for me. And though I am made of only ash and dust, your death ensures what I now clearly see. All this was done to open eyes like mine, which only see the realm of this domain, and cannot apprehend this sight divine except by grace. Through faith, you make it plain. O eternal King, my Savior, this I vow. It is you that I desire to behold. Before your blood-stained feet, I humbly bow and see your crown of thorns as pure as gold. I pray that that is the desire 
of every one of us here this morning. To see Him in all His glory stand before us. And friends, when He does, how else can we respond but by bowing our knee to Him and saying, Behold our King. Amen.